You've taken your first step into a larger world. Let's go. Hello there. I'm Rowan Williams. I'm Baz McAllister. And welcome to Force Material, where today we are joined by a very special guest. Uh, aside from George Lucas himself, with whom our guest today worked closely for 15 years anyway, this man probably did more to inspire this podcast than anyone else. He is the number one New York Times bestselling author of some of the best and most in-depth books on cinema ever published, including, but certainly not limited to, the making of Star Wars, the making of The Empire Strikes Back, the making of Return of the Jedi, the making of Revenge of the Sith, the complete making of Indiana Jones, Rick Baker Metamorphosis, the making of Planet of the Apes, the making of Alien, and the upcoming The Making of Aliens. He also wrote The Star Wars, Dark Horse's very popular comic book adaptation of an early George Lucas draft, two episodes of The Clone Wars, an Indiana Jones novel, and the upcoming All Up, a historical novel about the space race. He is, of course, J.W. Rensler. J.W., welcome to the show. Uh, thanks. Yeah, it sounds like my obituary. <laughs> <laughs> now, J.W., you are obviously beloved by fans for your making of books. Have you always been someone who sort of believes that, like, the most important part of creation is the process? Like, if, you know, are you the type of person who's more interested in the making of a movie than, than sort of watching the, the movie itself? No. The movie itself, of course, is the ultimate expression of the artist. And in the end, that's what's going to decide whether that and whatever state technology is in is going to decide whether people are still interested in that particular art form and that particular expression of that art form. Mm. But I think what happens over time is that recently more and more is that people are almost as, or at least a certain group of people are almost as interested in the people who made it as the thing that they made. And the two become almost inseparable in people's minds like right now i'm listening to the the uh, office ladies <laughs> you guys are fans of the office yeah my wife's listening to that at the moment too yeah well my daughter started and i'm a fan of the office and i love listening to them talk about the office and hearing about these things that only they could know about because they were there mm. and so anyway I, and i and i've always had a i've always liked doing that ever since jaws came out and i read the jaws log yeah, well, I was going to ask, like, you know, was there sort of a light bulb moment as a kid where you became interested in what was going on behind the scenes of movies? Like, were you always aware that, you know, movies were like a thing that someone made, like that people worked on? Or was there like a moment when you were like, oh, hey, there are people who are making these things? Well, I read Famous Monsters magazine as a kid. So I don't know. I think Jaws was really the first one that were a film. I mean, I liked films before, but Jaws had such a visceral effect on me. My father at that time also was at Universal Studios sort of doing some, trying to be a producer, eventually got one or two things produced. But uh, so it was all, it seemed very close, you know, and I walked around Universal Studios and saw the shark afterwards deconstructed, you know, parts of it missing. So it seemed very close to home. And so I don't know. It, it, and then I just love movies. So yeah, I guess the, the short answer is probably yes always been interested in both sides of it 
Yeah, well, that's, I mean, if you, it's funny though, because if you were sort of walking around Universal Studios at that at that point, you must have been pretty close to where, where George Lucas was actually working on, you know, the early yeah. sort of drafts of Star Wars. I realized that retroactively, yeah, much later, putting the pieces together, I realized, oh my God, yeah, I was. In fact, yeah, my father was friends with, uh, I'm not forgetting her name, um, Verna Fields, mm-hmm. who edited Jaws and who edited, helped edit American Graffiti. And, you know, was hired George Lucas and Marsha Lucas very early on, you know, <laughs> like in 19, I don't know what year it was, 1970 or something. So, or 69, actually. But anyway, and if, um, a neighbor of mine named uh, Ernest Callenbach, Chick Callenbach, used to edit the Film Quarterly magazine of the University of California at Berkeley. And they were neighbors. And so all those guys, George Lucas and all the Philip Kaufman and Francis, were all going to his house to talk about film, and I, but at that time I was probably you know ten or something, yeah. so it was very close. But I had no idea it was happening. But if you put the pieces together, it was oh, we were all it's a very close knit community, even though we didn't know it. Wow, that's amazing. So you sort of harbored ambitions to work at Lucasfilm for a long time before you were actually hired to work at Lucasfilm. Like why? Why was that? What was it about Lucasfilm that that sort of appealed to you? Well, in the late eighties, I was trying to be a professional painter. And I wasn't a very good one, <laughs> but I was trying. And so I thought, ooh, I, you know, I thought matte painting and painting, that they have the same word in both of them. So <laughs> They must be pretty much the same thing, right? That's right. I thought, you know, I don't know how to do it, but I'm sure they can teach me. So I sent in my portfolio and I wish I had saved it, but I got a rejection letter back in 1988 or something. Wow. Uh, and then a long time went by. And then I, when I came back, I lived, at, I lived in France for a while. When I came back, I had gotten even more interested in film. And I thought, I really, I really want to work at Lucasfilm. It's, it's this hugely creative company. And now they're starting the prequel trilogy. And I want to work there. And I applied mm. for several, several jobs and got rejected several times before I finally got a job there. I just figured it was the, the most creative place to work in the Bay Area. I didn't really know... Actually, no, I did. I went over to Pixar, too. I would have been happy to work at Pixar, too, but I, I th- couldn't find anything that I could do there that would be useful to them. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, but as long then, as we're just throwing things out to the universe, I, too, would be happy to work at Pixar or Lucasfilm, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, with your own art, what sort of things were you painting? What style were you, you painting and what medium? Uh, oil on canvas. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look on my website, I posted a few paintings that I think are still not so awful that I. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, yeah, so I was I was interested in telling a story in a single image. Mm. So yeah, and I loved you know I, many heroes painters you know from Michelangelo to mm. Turner and and then comic book artists too like Bernie Wrightson. And, Jim Steranko and everybody. You and you were actually hired by Lucasfilm on. I might have this wrong, but I'm, you were hired by Lucasfilm on 9/11, right? Like that must have been quite a yeah. potent emotional cocktail for you. Well, you guys have done your homework. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you know that? Did I? I must have written that somewhere. Uh, I mean, I read. Look, I've I've read a lot of stuff. Yeah, I probably said it. Yeah, it was 9/11. The one day that I thought I definitely wouldn't hear from them. And uh, Julia Cardinale called me from the Human Resources Department and said, we know it's a terrible day and everybody is 
scared and happy, but we wanted to make one person's day a little bit better. So we wanted to tell you, you got the job. Wow. Very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> we couldn't really wow. be that happy. But of course, part of me was thinking, well, that's, this is significant. So you, and you, that's, you, a, that's a where were you on 9-11 that you'll never forget. <laughs> I'd already fled from my office in San Francisco. You had to take the ferry back. Yeah. Everybody had to go home. And, you know, everybody was freaking out and paranoid. So it was, yeah, I wouldn't have forgotten it anyway, but that, that had <laughs> yeah. Now you weren't hired to be a, a writer at, at Lucasfilm. You were hired to be an editor, but then you, you know, within a few years, you found yourself writing the making of Revenge of the Sith, the art of Revenge of the Sith. How did that happen? Yeah, it was actually even, well, writing, not so much, but I got very much involved fairly quickly because I was hired as a nonfiction editor, although I did do some fiction, you know, YA fiction editing as well. But right off the bat, they said, you know, you're handling the art of episode two and the making of episode two, and you're dealing with Rick McCallum, the producer. And everybody was really scared of working with Rick. Nobody wanted to work with Rick because I had really, so I had really drawn the short straw (laughs) for anybody who'd been there for a while thought. And so I was very uh, uh, worried about meeting Rick the first time I had to meet him. He had this big office in the main house at Skywalker Ranch. And we were over, uh, licensing was in a, a carriage house, which was a different building. There were like three sort of support buildings. They were all pretty nice. But the main house was, of course, this fantastic place. And George, George's office is down the hall from Rick's. So I was really worried and because and, he had a tremendous reputation. Mm. But as it is, we we hit it off and we started talking about, and this was only, I'd only been there a few months. And he said, what can we do for the episode three book that would be different from the episode two book? And I said, well, why don't we do it like the Jaws log, you know, and tell the whole story of production, not just concentrating on the visual effects, because that's only just a part of it, right? There's a thousand important parts to making Mm. a movie. And he immediately said, Right, let's do it. And that was what was so wonderful about Lucasfilm back then is he just said, right, let's do it. And then two weeks later, I was in the uh, first art department meeting, concept meeting for episode three, because even though episode two wasn't out, they knew they had to start up on episode three. So it was just Ryan Church and Eric Tiemens and Robert Barnes and George and Rick and me. And I wasn't supposed to write though. I was just taking notes. Mm -hmm. But then later as it turned it out, turned out, uh, you know, about I mean, what it was a year and a half later, more or less, I ended up getting the job to write it. And I, I did, I resisted. And Rick said, basically, don't worry, you can do it. He was very, he was really very supportive. And I owe a lot to him. As, as a general rule, making of books, you know, especially back then, tended to be, well, as you said, they would focus a lot on the visual effects. They, they would often be sort of essentially like book length puff pieces in, in most cases, right. um, you know, but you wanted to obviously go in depth and tell that sort of real unfiltered story. But it sounds like the, the powers that be didn't sort of t- take as much persuading as you would think they might to give you that kind of access. No, again, uh, and it's true, as a licensed writer, which I mostly am, you are the bottom of the best. because let's face it your average making of book and art of book are just marketing department extensions they're Mm. most of them not that great Mm. but it but lucasfilm is different because george lucas was in charge and i think what i felt from the beginning because i 
you know, was in meetings with George and I was, I was learning everything about him I could in order to do my job as effectively as possible. I watched everything that he had produced and directed, everything, which I hadn't up to that time. I'd seen a lot, but not mm. everything, uh, including his student films, which were very eye-opening. If you're actually working with the person who made those student films, you realize this is not a Hollywood director in the normal sort of cut out Hollywood director who's really very much into his image and very much into the whole Hollywood thing. This was not who George was and who he is. Mm. Uh, that's not to say he doesn't have an ego. Of course he does, but not like the typical one. And, and, and I could tell he was not interested in doing a puff piece. Mm. He actually, I just felt that he would be interested in doing something that told the unvarnished more. Obviously you can never tell everything, but, could at least take, take several steps into telling a more complete story. And, uh, and, and, you know, to his, to, to his credit, he hardly, you know, he looked, he's read four or five or six books that I've written. He hardly changed anything in the mm. six book, you know? Uh, and it's not like I went out of my way to, to do things that I thought would irritate him or prove that he's going to cut this out because he, I knew there was, there was a gray area and I tried to stay and be respectful. And I, and I, and I don't think people's private lives to a certain point are part of the making of story. Of course, you could argue that they are, obviously you could write books that went more into their private lives. And some people have, mm. I, there, there was a limit, you know, I, I, and I wouldn't personally, I wouldn't have felt comfortable doing it. And I did stray once by accident and I got an earful from not George, but the person who, and I realized that I had accidentally stepped over a line, totally accidentally. And so it's really not something that I feel comfortable with mm. myself. So anyway, yeah, again, the short answer is I felt like George Lucas would be able to handle a book that told a more complete story. And I also was personally frustrated. It's like, why is only this tiny little narrow segment of the movie making process being focused on, including like just the filming of it, when the editing, for example, is so important. Mm. You know, it's so important to making a film. And nobody ever talked to George about editing his movies, hardly ever. Mm. And so I remember during that talking, it was my first really one-on-one -on -one interview, just me and him, and it was at his house. And I remember he, at first he just, it's like he couldn't believe his ears. I was asking about editing and he kind of tried to just sort of at, answer in a general way. And I said, no, no, but tell me, what are you actually doing in editorial? What, what are you going, what are you doing now? And I think he was, uh, in the end, I think he was happy to talk about it because he just had so rarely, and I think he wasn't even so used to not talking about it that he wasn't fully prepared to talk about it. Mm. But then... But then he did start, he, he got into a groove and then, and then eventually he allowed me to come into the editing uh, suite with, and, you know, it was only for a day or two, but that was enough with him and Ben Burt. And it was just, it was just fantastic person in that sense to work with. Yeah. Well, it's funny, like I've always sort of gotten the impression from, from your books and probably from other like articles about, about Lucas where, you know, where they've interviewed him that, that editing was kind of his way into filmmaking, I guess, like that that's sort of what led to his love of filmmaking in the, in the first place. I mean, was that, was that still sort of his, his real passion, even in the time that, you know, that you knew him? Yeah, I, I think so. 
I think it still was about getting them, writing the material, then protecting the material while directing, and then finally getting into the editing room where you get to deal with material and finally getting to use all these tools that he's personally bankrolled, you know, to be able to edit the film digitally. I think for him was, was I don't think he likes to say sometimes when he's pleased about something, it's just not his style, but I, I think he was pleased. Mm. On the uh, on the set of episode three, you at, at one point you you overheard George Lucas asking himself, you know, why, why am I putting myself through this again? From your perspective, being there, seeing him at work every day, wh- why do you think he was putting himself through it again? Like it, it seems like he didn't sort of enjoy the process of making the at least the production stage of making the film that much. No, he. I don't think he enjoys it very much. No, I think he. It's really for him an ordeal. Uh, more or less. I mean, you know, I'm sure he gets parts of it are fun and he had his family there. So I think that was important and helpful for him. Mm. Uh, But why does he do it? I think one of the reasons why is obviously he likes it from a certain point of view or he wouldn't do it. He doesn't have to do it for the money, obviously. But I, I think there is one aspect of it is he does feel a kind of moral responsibility to keep his company going. Running Lucasfilm and also his various business, not business, his uh, building projects, which cost a lot of money. He mm-hmm. has to finance all that. And there's nothing that finances all that like a Star Wars film. You know, because once you do the film, then, and I don't think even he knew, once he started that prequel trilogy, the licensing department began a kind of momentum that just, even after the, in 2006 and 2007, Lucas licensing was a juggernaut. And mm. we had such a strong program uh, in publishing, but and then I had nothing to do with it, but also in toys and Lego and all that. It was a very strong program. And I think that's why ultimately he was thinking about doing the, the next trilogy too, is, is a way of keeping everything going. Yeah. Would you, would you think it's fair to say that, uh, you know, all the production process leading up to editing for George is the ordeal part. And then when he gets into the editing suite, it seems to be that, it's just him and, you know, one other person maybe and, and all the amazing shots he's created and he gets to just play with those without the added pressure of having to stand up and be a leader and direct everyone. Do you think that's his comfort zone in a way? He definitely feels more comfortable, yeah. Yeah. But, mm. it, you know, there's also, other, there's always other stuff going on too. There was animatics that he was working mm. on and then uh, two or three mornings a week, I think it was two mornings a week at ILM, there was dailies. And then, you know, of course, there's, I'm sure there's stuff that I never heard about, too. Uh, so it's, it's never that simple where he just gets to get up, go and sit in editing eight hours a day. You know, he always had a fairly full mm. schedule. But, but he had people he'd been working with for a long time who really knew how to support him and knew how he wanted the day to go, more or less, like Jane Bay and so on. George isn't generally thought of as, you know, an actor's director. You, on that set, you got to see him up close, you know, working with actors. What was that relationship like from, from your perspective? Uh, well, I think it's fair to say that, yeah, he's, he's not, you know, like he's not somebody who comes from the theater, <laughs> like Coppola, and really mm. enjoys sitting down and talking about the character that they're playing and, things that may not be happening on screen and all that. No, I think he, he, I think for him, yeah, he just wants to get there and he's hired these people to do a job and he just wants them to do their job. And that's not to say he's cold because he's not, 
and he has a sense of humor mm. and he's sympathetic to you know their their feelings he's not a cold person at all but he's not a theater director either and i think also, there was a generational thing, you know, when he worked with Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, Mark Hamill, they understood where he was coming from. And he was already old enough to be the father of Natalie Portman, Ewan McGregor, and Hayden Christensen. So there wasn't that instantaneous understanding of what he was trying to do. I don't mm. know that they understood fully what he was trying to do some of the time. Yeah, well, it's, you know, you mentioned Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, etc. I mean, making off books are traditionally part of the promotional push for new movies. Uh, but then, you know, a couple of years after the making of Revenge of the Sith, you wrote the making of Star Wars, which is now, you know, really sort of set the set the template, I guess, for how these kind of like in-depth coffee table books based on the makings of, of classic films uh, are made. What, what was the, the impetus for you to kind of look backwards and, and the impetus for Lucasfilm to sort of look backwards and, and publish that book in the, in the first place? Well, it was, it was really funny because even at Lucasfilm, people weren't sure if there had already had been a making of Star Wars book or not. <laughs> <laughs> because there'd been, it had been so long and there'd been so many sort of making of books. There was an art of book and then there was an illustrated screenplay, which sort of the same thing. And then there, and then, there had been documentaries. So people are actually, we had to do a fair amount of research before we absolutely were sure there wasn't one. Uh, because even what I ended up using as the basis for the book, the, the Charlie Lippincott interviews, mm. if you looked on Amazon, there was a book, The Making of Star Wars by Charles Lippincott. But of course, but the book itself didn't exist because he never wrote it. <laughs> so there was some confusion. But so, but once it, I realized there wasn't one, I thought, well, we have the 30th anniversary was coming up. So that was, that was the sort of superficial impetus because publishers love to do things on anniversaries. Mm. And so I, I just pitched it. And then I don't think I pitched it directly to George. I think my boss, Lucy Wilson, pitched it directly to George, or it may have been a different person at the time, or it may have been Howard Rothman, but George, because he knew me at that time, said, fine, go ahead. And that was before we knew about the Lippincott actual interviews. And then once I started, was able to then got the green light to start doing research, one of the first things that uh, we discovered was, was this cache of interviews. I'm sure a lot of people don't realize, like when you were writing those Star Wars books, like you were still doing your nine to five, you know, like you were still, you were still working as an editor at, at, for, for Lucasfilm. So, I mean, you know, you must have been working pretty much 24 seven during the making of those, of those books. Yeah, it was not. It was nonstop. I I didn't take a lot of vacations, no, hardly any, but it was so much fun. I'm mm. not at all complaining. It was. I'd often get home from work and tell Genevieve, my wife, I'd say, there are people who would pay ten thousand dollars or more to have the day that I just had, talking to Ben Bird or having lunch with Dennis Murren and going through, you know, holding Ralph Macquarie's paintings in your hands and the Ark of the Covenant is sitting there while you're going through something. And you're just so this is, this is fun. You know, this is really a lot of fun. Did you find when you were writing about, you know, the original trilogy that it was easier to get people to open up and, 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 and talk as opposed to, you know, when you were working on the making of Revenge of the Sith, like I've, I've read that you sort of had trouble like getting some of the actors and stuff to, to talk on the making of Revenge of the Sith. But, you know, it seems like everybody was, was willing to be involved in the making of Star Wars. Like, why do you think that was? 
Well, I think with 30 years, people tend to relax a bit. Mm. And each book is different. You know, for the Star Wars book, I really wanted to rely just on the Lippincott interviews because I wanted it to be as much like that was what was happening. It was so great because there were interviews that happened bef- that he did before the movie came out. Empire was a little bit the same, but uh, on Re- on Revenge of the Sith, when you're ma- whenever something's being made, the PR and marketing departments are very sensitive, particularly about the actors. Mm. They just want them left alone, and so I was kind of just warned off the actors, uh, except for Hayden Christensen, who who uh, let me basically hang out with him for an entire day, <laughs> you know, from basically morning till evening till they drove him. I went in the car as they drove him back to see what was one of his typical days was like. Um, but Ewan McGregor and Natalie Portman, I was really told basically to, to not ask them anything unless I was, you know, unless, <laughs> unless they did and they didn't. <laughs> and so I just had the EPKs for them, which wasn't all that interesting, but you know, what can you do? Yeah. Um, you um you mentioned like spending the day with Hayden Christensen on the on the set of Revenge of the Sith. I mean, at that point, obviously, Attack of the Clones, uh, you know, had had been released, and you know, there'd been some some criticism of his performance in that. Did you get a sense in the time that you spent with him that that he was bothered by that criticism, or that he had questions about the about how he was being directed? I think he I think he had questions about it, but he also told me, I saw him again when they were when John Williams was conducting the London Symphony Orchestra at Abbey Road. Mm-hmm. He came for a few hours to watch. And I was going there pretty much every day. So we overlapped. And uh, he said, because I think, I don't know if he'd seen a cut or if he just had time to think about it. Maybe he'd seen a cut at that point. He said, now I understand what George is trying to do. So he did mm-hmm. understand at the end. Mm. When you're when you're writing about older films, how accurate do people's recollections of the of the development of those movies usually turn out to be? I mean, there's so much mythologizing that goes on after a movie turns out to be a hit. How does that affect your work now? Well, you know, you get the whole spectrum. You get people who cannot recall anything, <laughs> not worth talking to. Uh, from not just actors, but any behind the scenes people who just don't remember things in terms of stories. They just, and they just don't have a good memory. <laughs> you get other people who have almost photographic memories who can tell you things 30 years after the fact, and they're just right on the money and you get everything in between. Uh, only a few people would create things that were just didn't happen and clearly yeah. didn't happen. <laughs> and then you have to be careful once you realize that, wait a second, that thing they said is, could not have happened. I know it didn't happen. Then you have to start taking everything they said with a grain of salt, which is why I prefer to, you know, concentrate on stuff that was said or done at the time or where there's, you know, that's why I love the, the memos and the, mm. all the stuff that was recorded at the time. And, and, uh, and that's why Lucas film they saved everything. I mean, I got to go through Howard Kazandrian's phone logs, <laughs> you know, calendars, that stuff you know is 100% accurate. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose like within Star Wars circles, like an example of one of the kind of creation myths that that sort of gotten out of hand is, you know, you look at the backstory of Darth Vader. So even George Lucas has given interviews where he talks about, you know, Darth Vader was a variation on Dark Father, you know, sort of implying that Darth was sort of always going to be revealed to be Luke's dad. I mean, you probably have a better idea than anyone of, of you know, what the actual mindset was back then, what the, what the process was. I mean, 
at what point do you think George decided that Darth Vader was, was Luke's father? Well, I, I tend to cut him some slack because he was trying to get this movie made mm. that was really phenomenally difficult to make, right? You have to go back and remember all the things that he was doing. Mm. The studio was act, part of the studio, the business department was actively fighting against him and, and to make this movie go away. They had, they hated it. They just hated it up till, you know, they were trying to sell it off to German business investors up to the point it, where it was released practically. And everything was going wrong that you can imagine. Even his best friends didn't have faith in this movie, right? So he's trying to get this movie done. And meanwhile, he's written early scripts where there was a character named Anakin Starkiller and his father, Kane Starkiller, was half man, half machine, right? Mm -hmm. When the earliest draft of Star Wars, the character that became half man, half machine was the protagonist's father. Mm -hmm. So if George says that was always the intent, that's true. But by the time he got to actually making Star Wars, I don't think he knew or cared who Darth Vader was. <laughs> he was the bad guy. And Luke's turned out to be Skywalker, was the good guy, he was no longer a Jedi. Everything had changed so much between the rough draft and his shooting script that he didn't care. He was just trying to get through the work on the day. And then I think... And then I don't know the thought process that occurred afterwards, but I, it's clear to me that the family dynamics had not were, were on hold, so he could make this movie, <laughs> trying to make his money back and not have to sell it, his you know move into his car, right? Mm. Uh, although it wasn't his money at this point; it was the studios. But still, it was his career was on the line, and so then when he started doing Empire, then he had. A, chance to reflect a little bit and slowly but surely Darth Vader re-became the protagonist's father again but I think it's it's not unfair or for, or for him to be he's not making up something that wasn't true that because mm. it was true from the from the get-go and at one point early on uh, Leia is Luke's cousin right so there was a family relationship there too but again while he was making Star Wars I don't think those were this is just my opinion where those relationships were forefront in his mind necessarily mm. and but only he could tell you for sure and and you know he he might give you a different answer on a different day <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying essentially is that you know what he said was true from a certain point of view right yeah because i mean i remember on the set of episode three he told me it's so interesting because with these six movies, because you can move them around. And if you move around, if you watch them in this order, they tell one story. Story. If you watch them in this order, it tells a different story. And he, you know, he's an abstract filmmaker, or, or he was. And I thought I, I, that was clear. It's in the episode three book. But later, when I asked him if we could make a documentary that kind of showed how that was true, he said, no, there's only one way to watch the movies. <laughs> so that was the wrong day to ask him about that. <laughs> And it was the same, you know, everybody has their, their moods, you know. And mm. so. The funny thing is, you know, the Skywalker family soap opera, I mean, you said that, you know, he wasn't that concerned with it on the making of the original film. And that's now become really the through line of, of the Star Wars saga. It's all about, you know, who's the Skywalker and, and how, how that all, you know, how that lineage 
happened. But the, I mean, the original film still completely works if you ignore those later reveals. Like it, it's, it's, you know, it's the only one that just completely works as a standalone film. Yeah, you guys probably know that, I, that I've gone on at length about how Star Wars is really the last trilogy, last of a trilogy that's about leaving home. Yeah. Which is HX, American Graffiti, Star Wars. That's a way of George's leaving home trilogy. All the characters there are leaving kind of homes slash prisons and the importance of making new friends, which George is going to USC and meeting all these other filmmakers and finding in a sense his, his artistic family. Then Empire and Jedi is another story using the same characters where it's about Luke and the Darth Vader and redemption and all that stuff. And then the prequel trilogy is, is again, using characters with the same names, but in my opinion, are not the same characters. Fairly, mm. although you can see it that way if you want. It, that's what's so great about it. But it's really a different story about how a, a good little kid goes bad and how a democracy becomes a, totalita a totalitarian state. And uh, it's, it's, like Gene, it's like Gene Roddenberry in Star Trek. Sometimes Captain Kirk is not quite the same. <laughs> <laughs> it depends who's writing it. And sometimes, it, sometimes characters change depending on what story is and what they need to do to serve the story. So it's a, it's a tricky thing. Yeah. Well, speaking of like characters changing to serve the story, I guess, I mean, you mentioned like that in, in, in some early drafts, like Leia was Luke's cousin. I mean, it's, you know, when you watch at least the first two films, it seems pretty clear, at least you would hope it's, it's clear that Luke and Leia weren't meant to be siblings. Um, but you know, it's later revealed, obviously, that that, uh, that you know that they are even even as far back as Lee, Bra Lee Brackett's draft of Empire. It's mentioned that Luke has a sister. Why why do you think that he decided to reveal that it was Leia specifically who was who was that sister? Well, in Jedi, I think I found, and George didn't change it, so I assumed that I found the moment where he he writes sister with an exclamation mark. So I I think it just. I mean, only George could answer why at that point. I think it just must have served the story. It worked well for him. Uh, it, ex it, it explains who the other is. Mm. I don't think he knew who the other was when he when Yoda said it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he maybe he did. You know, George once told me that he has a a, a large some sort of large notebook folder thing where he's where he has all of his notes and like his most personal notes about making. Star Wars, and I asked him if I could see it, and he just said no. <laughs> he let me see some of his notes, and I don't know where they got him, but but he wouldn't let me see that whole thing. So maybe that would answer your question, but I've never seen it. Yeah, well, well, I get the impression from reading your book as well that by the time he got to Return of the Jedi, you know, he'd been doing this for a few years. It, it was a tough time for him personally as well, that, that maybe he just kind of wanted the story to be over at that point. Like, did you get a sense that, like Gary Kurtz, I think, talked about this while he was alive, that, that you know, that at one point George wanted to do seven, eight and nine and, and they were going, you know, maybe they would have gotten, you know, in those movies into who the other was, et cetera, et cetera. For, from your kind of interpretation of, you know, the memos and stuff from the time of Return of the Jedi is your kind of impression that he just wanted to sort of close off, you know, close off the story to, to finish it up. Well, I think he did, but I, you can't tell somebody, you can't tell an audience that there's another in episode five and then not show who it is in episode six. <laughs> yeah. It'd be very bad for business. <laughs> <laughs> so I think he wanted to say in episode six, no matter what, but I, whether he was going to do seven, eight, nine, 
I think he was just so burned out by the end of episode six. I don't think people can imagine how exhausting it is to make a movie. I, I don't know personally. I was, I was mm-hmm. there and I observed it. And sort of secondhand, I know what, how exhausting it is to be on a set and to just, it's so intense. But to be the person who's ultimately in charge and who's also going to be crucified if it's not good, you know, to, enough for people, I can't imagine the pressure. So I think he, and then of course, what happened personally just made him want to step back and take a multi-year vacation. Mm. Uh, and then I think he was also really um, fed up with the limitations. And so he spent a number of years bankrolling what became Pixar, what became digital effects, getting these amazingly creative people from a technological point of view and just a, an artistic point of view to, to basically work on these projects for him. So even though he wasn't actively directing, he was having a huge impact on the industry. Mm. You um you also worked with George on at the same time as you know these books were happening. You also worked with him on the Lucas Books imprint, and you published a, a whole range of books that you know about some pretty surprising topics. I guess I mean one of them was on uh, death statistics, uh, causes of death, which is obviously, I mean I guess that's a hot topic right now. What what interested George about that of all things? Well, those books it was actually the the imprint was George Lucas Books mm-hmm. and. I was in on the early meetings and the original idea was that Lucy Wilson, who was my boss, who was also the very first employee of Lucasfilm, uh, and I would work with publishers and do this non-Star Wars related books. And the first one was about uh, Bay Area filmmakers and filmmaking. And then there was the cause of death. And then there was, he wanted to do a book about uh, the real budgets in, in behind movie making. And, um, but I worked for that only for about a year. And then they, there was a separation of the company or there was a big, after episode two, there was a big reshuffling because we moved to Big Rock Ranch, which is only down the road from Skywalker. It's the same ranch, but it was a different entrance mm. and a different building. Uh, and then, so then Lucy, Lucy basically ended up doing those books by herself. Right. I knew about them from her, but I didn't really have anything to do with them. She she had the monumental task of basically working with George by herself and getting those books <laughs> done. But I was there in the beginning. And I just know that he was really interested. At one point, he wanted to do a book on alternate ways of child rearing, too, and alternate ways of giving birth. Because he was just, you know, he's not just interested in, in Star Wars mm. or sci-fi fantasy. He has a huge range of interests but uh, but you know working with him was very intense sometimes more intense than i would have liked (laughs) and uh but it was always interesting you know you never knew when you went into a room with him what was going to happen some you know a couple of times i walked away with you know several years worth of work to do (laughs) (laughs) And, and working on star wars and history was really interesting project because, you know, we got to talk about history. And he, he sent somewhere, I still have it too. He's, he gave me, you know, here, here's what in history interested me. He just spelled it out. How long do you find academics who are good in these subjects and who like Star Wars and have them write about it? And then I found these editors and we, they found the academics and, you know, it turned out reasonably well. But it was a bit of a 
but it was fascinating to work on. And, you know, George has always sort of had that interest in history and, and that's always informed, especially the, the, the prequels and like the politics of, of the prequels. Um, we were, Baz and I just a few weeks ago on this show, we're talking about sort of the origins of like the Clone Wars and, and where all of that came from and how nobody really knew, you know, what the Clone Wars were or this whole idea of, you know, the Emperor kind of, you know, manipulating like a shadow war sort of situation until episode two was released really even though people you know it had been part of the people have been talking about the clone wars for years before that do you think that george had an idea of what the clone wars were when he was making the original films or do you think he kind of came up with it when he sat down to write the prequels well i think you know again i haven't seen those that big notebook so i really can't say (laughs) i think he probably my guess is he probably had stuff written down because he had to know he had to have some idea Hmm. And, uh, but of course, you know, just like I've seen his his um, his original notes for what was going to what became the, the sequel trilogy, seven, eight, and nine. But you know, from the difference between notes and actually making something are, is is night and day. Hmm. So of course, when he sat down to make episode two, and then later to do the the animated show, then he got to flex his muscles and and. Uh, and 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 fill fill it out but i but i maintain that the continuity doesn't always work yeah (laughs) (laughs) well speaking of that animated show i mean you you did uh you know you wrote a couple episodes of that you wrote it's a really fun arc it's kind of like this odd for for anyone who hasn't seen it it's sort of an odd couple buddy cop two-parter uh called the disappeared with jar jar banks and mace windu uh of all of all people did you like did you want to write Jar Jar Banks, or was was that kind oh, of foisted upon you? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was the price I had to pay to to sort of it was it was like a hazing. It was like, <laughs> I think, can I write a couple of scripts? I just asked him point blank. I I went. I did not go through proper channels. I thought I'm with George. Well, sometimes all day long, I'm asking him. Yeah. And that was not a very smart thing for me to do, ultimately. <laughs> it made quite a few people upset. But, uh, and then George's sort of hazing was, okay, you can write a couple, but I want you, and as soon as he said, I want you to re- rehabilitate Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> and then the story wasn't mine. It was George's. As most of the Clone Wars episodes, the basic ideas were George's. Hmm. You know, you'd go into the room and, and he'd say, this is the basic ideas, and then you'd work out the three acts and the five or six scenes within each act together, but it was really George driving it. And, and, and I wrote what I thought were okay scripts, but by the time they were, they were done, there's hardly anything left of my actual scripts in there. <laughs> it was probably 5% at the most. It was a really interesting experience, but I can't really claim any credit for the final part. <laughs> How did you uh, how did you go about uh, getting into the into the mindset, if you will, of Jar Jar Binks to write to write that character? I mean, what was what was that like? Well, it's e- it's easy to get into the mindset of this character. It's just like when I wrote the Indiana Jones YA novel, it's so easy because you know you're working if you're working in Lucasfilm, you're basically cohabitating with these characters. <laughs> good part of every day particularly star wars characters it was so easy and you just you just it's like the second nature and if you're at all inclined to write they just start talking by themselves you know? and 
you just write down what they said. Yeah, well, I would imagine writing the Indiana Jones book. I mean, you being essentially the, uh, you know, the archaeologist of Lucasfilm, that would be particularly easy for you to get into that mindset. Yeah, and it was so fun. I just sat down and said, what would I like to see if I were an Indiana Jones fan? And I said, well, <laughs> that villain who wasn't finished with the arm. And because uh, I was right in the thick of, I had just done all the research for the Indiana Jones book, mm. making it. I knew a lot about Indiana Jones that particular time. <laughs> And I'd, and I'd edited the book that Jim Lucino wrote, Jim Lucino wrote for DK, like this big Indiana, like the whole Indiana Jones universe. So I was really up on it. And I thought, oh, I want a scene with his dad and I want it to be, you know, with Nazis and I want to go here. And I want to go. It was just so much fun. And then they, like they say, like I said, they just, they kind of just start saying the lines themselves. And of course you invent a few characters yourself and they just talk and you try to make it, keep moving. That's my credo is just keep it moving. Don't let it bog down. Don't, you know, keep the audience entertained if possible. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, in, uh, in in 2012, we come to uh, the the fateful day when Lucas uh, sells his company to to Disney. I mean, you've, you've written before, or you've said before, you, you always thought Lucas would sell his company to Disney or, or something like a, a corporation like Disney. Yeah, you, you've really done your homework. Right? <laughs> why, why did you think that though? Uh, because I, you know, we're all mortal, right? We're all mm. going to die. And I thought George doesn't want his characters to die. What studio is going to keep them going? And the answer was obvious. Disney. Disney has been around the longest and has the best record in keeping beloved characters going. So I just figured it had to be Disney, but I didn't think, and I thought maybe Sony, cause I, I, that was wrong, totally wrong about that. But I thought Sony might have deep enough pockets. Cause I think, cause I know in Japan, they really love the star Wars characters, but I didn't think at all he would do it that soon. I figured it was about 10 years from when it actually happened. What was the reaction like within the company when the sale like went down? It was, it was, uh, um, I guess I would say that it was dis- disbelief. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people like to spend a lot of time complaining. And hard as it may seem to believe, there were people who complained about working at Lucasfilm, which I, you know, <laughs> I could never understand. You know, no company is perfect. Yeah. Every company. You know, and there's always people at companies who are not doing the most greatest job. But but Lucasfilm on the whole was really a fantastic place to work. So I think some people who had been complaining about it suddenly realized it was going away, suddenly changed their tune. But then I think there was, I was, you know, I was kind of cautiously optimistic. I thought Disney was going, you know, at, had could be a really interesting place to work. And I thought maybe I could work on other projects besides Star Wars. I thought... I would love to write a book about Disney's live action movies, you know, from the golden era. So I was cautiously optimistic, but it was basically, I felt very sad. You know, mm-hmm. we went to this big meeting, the whole company and George was on the stage and it was clearly the end of a era the end of his, uh, although he said he wanted to go do, you know, 16 millimeter or his very private kind of movies. And, uh, um, but it seemed like the, just the end of an era. And so I felt 
sad and cautiously optimistic. I, everybody else, I think there was just the whole spectrum of emotions, of course. Mm. Did it immediately, like after the sale, you know, did Lucasfilm immediately feel like, you know, a different place to go to work or did it just sort of feel like business as usual for a while? It was busy. It took so long because at first the sale wasn't final. There was three months before the sale was final. And it's a huge thing to, to sort of slowly take over a company. So it happened very slowly. And for the first, you know, year and a half or so, it was pretty much normal. And then things started to change and um, got to a point where I wasn't, this really wasn't my cup of tea. And I, I decided it was time to move to greener pastures. Mm. So were you already like freelancing when you were working on the Force Awakens book or were you still like at Lucasfilm at that point? Well, I, I originally I was just the editor on that book. Right. And uh, because Disney wouldn't, it's a whole other thing, but basically I couldn't edit and write. Whereas Lucasfilm didn't care, Disney did for whatever internal reasons. Um, although it was very, very uh, uh, inconsistent across the company, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then at a certain point they asked me to basically add stuff and rewrite certain stuff and it was, I was basically did it freelance and then I thought it was pretty good and I certainly there wasn't anything in the book that wasn't already out there in all the articles and everything you know but for whatever I, for reasons that I still don't know the book was cancelled you've said though that you you had a feeling when you were working on it that it wasn't going to be released. I mean, given that you've just said, you know, there wasn't anything particularly wild or, or shocking in there. I mean, why, why did you think that? Just because it was a diametrically opposed uh, attitude towards George's, which was George was basically happy. George figures and knows and also says all the time himself, making a movie is really difficult. Mm. <laughs> and people's feelings get hurt. And, and accidents occur and, and mistakes are made and you do the best you can and you make your movie. Mm. But Disney, you were talking about marketing, Disney sees all of that stuff making of is just should not blemish the, in any way, the people who are making the movie and it's just an extension of marketing and PR. And so they, their tolerance for that kind of stuff was about, 99% less than that. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh-huh. it's just a different, it's just a totally different corporate culture. Mm. It's completely, it's just, that's why George was in Northern California to escape Hollywood. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, and of course people will write uh, in books to come and maybe those books are already out there. I don't know, because I'm not reading everything, but you know, how, how ironic it is. And I'm sure he's, completely aware of this, that the person who escaped Hollywood then sold his company to a Hollywood company. Yeah. And, he, and, and I think he likes Bob Iger and everything. And it's not like Disney's a terrible company. It's not. They do a lot of things really well. Mm. But in that particular sense, they're just, the corporate culture is very different. Mm. Have you had a chance to read Bob Iger's book or at least sort of the, you know, the excerpts, like the parts of Iger's book that relate to the, the Lucasfilm sale? I, I, I had to, I mean, I could easily get it, but I have not. <laughs> You've had a chance, but you have not read it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't read it at all. No, I only read, I think I read was some excerpt where he said that he could have handled, you know, basically pushing George out of the creative process a little bit better. 
which I think is true. <laughs> well, that's, that's exactly the part of the book I was going to ask you about because he, he talks in the book about, you know, essentially he boils it down to there was, there was a meeting where it became clear that George's ideas for the, for the sequels were not, you know, that wasn't the outline they were going to follow. Um, and he says that he regrets not giving George more of a heads up about that before that meeting. I mean, do, do you recall the meeting that he's talking about? Do you know, do you remember like what the atmosphere was like when George realized like, Oh, we're not, we're not doing my sequel trilogy. I do, but I have to be very careful what I say. Cause as you probably know, I started a blog where I was going to talk about that. Mm. I figured my attitude was very naive. I thought I'm doing this for free. I don't think the NDA covers this, but I was, <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> Obviously the financial component had nothing to do with it. And they had their, some other people definitely interpreted the NDA a little bit more strictly than I would interpret it as. Mm. So uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure exactly what meeting he's talking about, but I fully aware of what the atmosphere was like. And I mean, I can say one thing I think I can say, can I say this? Uh, I mean, I can't, I'm not going to say it because I just I <laughs> I want to sleep at night. <laughs> that's, look that's that's fair i mean obviously the 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 trilogy is sort of out there in the in the world now the whole story in terms of you know the, the story they did end up going with is out there in the open i'm assuming you've seen episode nine what what did you think just as a as a fan i didn't i haven't seen episodes eight or nine wow okay i i saw seven and i saw rogue one and i thought you know this is just too painful. I don't want to watch these movies anymore. <laughs> painful in the sense that because, you know, you were so closely a- attached to Lucasfilm previously or? Yeah, painful in that I, and maybe I'm, because I know a lot of people like the films and, you know, people get a lot out of them and I'm not saying you shouldn't. If they make, if you're happy watching those movies, all the better. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but I was not happy watching them because to me, Star Wars was the expression of a, of, a, of a single artist working with a lot of very creative people. And mm. It was all filtered through George. And I'm not saying he was perfect. All, all the movies have their people, you know, pointed out their flaws from day one and, and none, no movie is perfect. But they were an expression of George Lucas's uh, spirit, shall we say. Mm. A lot of people helping him, but he was the filter to saying yes, no, maybe well, you'll take that idea, not that idea, whatever. And then afterwards, it's not. It's not that expression anymore. It's the expression of different people. And uh, I'm not interested in those people as artists. That doesn't mean they couldn't do something eventually that's not Star Wars, or they could eventually do something that is Star Wars. It could be equally interesting. But from what I hear from my friends who see the movies, it doesn't sound like that's that would interest me mm. clearly it does interest a lot of other people to the tune of a lot of money and which is great because it keeps a lot of really talented and creative people employed yeah so i'm not yeah. it's just not for me mm. some of the um behind the scenes stories of these newer movies might be a lot more interesting than the uh the stories of some of the previous ones in terms of just the con the internal conflict the hirings and firings clearly some things went wrong um, so there'd be a lot of drama there to cover, and I would love to see like a, a book. You know, a, is inherently dramatic. 
Mm. Yeah. A bunch of people with very strong egos and very strong creative ideas, a huge amount at stake and a lot of money, particularly Star Wars movies. And, and so, of course, there's going to be firings and group feeling. I mean, what movie, hardly any movies haven't been made like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you were around episode seven working on that book, did you get a sense that there was a, did you get a sense that there was a a plan for the entire sequel trilogy in place at that point? Like that they were working towards, you know, in story meetings and stuff that they were working towards things in episode eight and nine or kind of like George Lucas on the original film. Did you get a sense that they were really just focused on episode seven at that point? Sorry, so when when uh, when they started working on episode seven? Yeah, like when when episode seven was being made, like oh, would, oh. Did, did, um, did you... well, the story group was definitely trying to work it out, so it would be seven, eight, and nine. But they they didn't get, you know. Again, you'd have to ask people. I wasn't in those meetings. Mm-hmm. Except maybe one. Um, but uh, um, but I I've read transcripts of some stuff, and I. I, you know, when I was working on the book, I saw certain things. I, I think there was an effort being made, but, but it, again, I think it, it's just such a messy process. It, it almost inevitably comes about just trying to get that movie that you're making done because it's so hard to get it done. There's so many things that go wrong. You know, Harrison Ford gets injured. I mean, of course that was during production, but in pre-production they started with one writer and then they switched and, and, uh, um, and then the, everybody has ideas. And mm. so, and then certain people, certain people have more power in the idea process. Mm. And so, and then, so the, how much actually gets put into the movie that's going to make sense two movies later is, is really anybody's guess. It's funny because I was going to ask you about something, but I, I, I also don't want to spoil episode eight and nine for you in case you eventually get around to watching them. But do you, <laughs> do you know or care like what what Ray's origin ended up being? No, you can tell me. I, I don't care. Okay, so Ray's a Palpatine. So so Ray's like Ray is the granddaughter of well, it's a, she's the daughter of a clone of Emperor Palpatine. So she's essentially his granddaughter. When when again when you were around Episode Seven, do you remember like any any sort of talk about Ray being a Palpatine or or anything like that, or do you think that's something that came up later? Uh, I'm again, I'm not so sure about my NDA. So I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to not respond. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's fair. That's good. Look, I thought that might be the case, but I had to, I had to, I had to try. In terms of what you wrote for the book though, like, would you, would you have gone into George's plans for his sequel trilogy? Like obviously by the time the book came out, it was already clear that wasn't happening, but is that something you would have covered just as part of the, you know, the pre-production story? Uh, given a full head of steam, yes, I would have, but it, it's not because so much stuff had gone down, let's say by the time I was actually doing that book freelance, I knew there was no way I could talk about it. Mm-hmm. There's just no way I could talk about it. There was no point in putting it in the book. So if they ever do publish the book, it's not in there. Yeah. Do you think that, I mean, you mentioned before George talked about doing 16 millimeter films, that kind of thing. Like he's sort of, he's, he's always talked about, you know, I want to go do my, my weird independent stuff. I want to make things in that, you know, my friends watch in my garage and that's it. Do you think there's any chance George, you know, independent of whatever Lucasfilm's doing is your sense of George Lucas that he would ever consider coming back and, and doing, you know, another, 
like a mainstream movie? Like, would he, would we ever see George Lucas's Fury Road? Like, you know, his, his sort of late, late career masterpiece, or do you think he really is retired? Well, that's a, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, right now, obviously he's trying to get his museum open. Mm. That, that's his main thrust. Uh, I, I tend to doubt it, but it's, you know, is it, as Sean Connery said, never say never again. <laughs> I mean, and, and you know, people who go into this business and who thrive in this business, it's not because they're the retiring type. <laughs> they keep working until they die. Yeah. And George does have the money. If George decided tomorrow I'm going to pay for a big budget movie and I'm going to direct it, he could. Yeah. Nothing stops. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he just hates the process. So more than anything else at this point that's, that, you know, and he's got a daughter now too that he's raising, Everest. The last time I saw George, I asked him how his daughter was, and this was a few years ago, and he immediately had, took out his phone, his iPhone, I think it was an iPhone, whatever smartphone he had, mm. and showed me a, a little video he had of her. And so clearly that's where his mind is, or at least was, but things change, you know, wants to make a movie when she's a teenager and who knows anything's possible yeah i mean i suppose there's nothing you know you, you know as you say he's got the money he could always if he if he was really uh you know if he felt really passionate about his ideas he could always uh scrape the serial numbers off and uh you know george lucas's space battles episode seven could uh could happen somewhere yeah. else yeah i mean he he is if anything he he's shown how idiosyncratic he is he tends to go against the grain on most things. So it, I wouldn't rule anything out. Although certainly I've no, I, I would doubt it. I would yeah. Doubt it, but why not? Towards, towards the end of, of his time at Lucasfilm, he gave a quote to the New York times. I'm sure you've seen before. They essentially asked him like, do you want to make any more movies? And he said, why would I make any more when everybody yells at you all the time and says what a terrible person you are? Was your sense that he's kind of resented the fandom or at least a, a part of the fandom after the prequels and, and the response to the prequels? Uh, not, I don't know. I actually never really, the only time I really got George, saw George get upset um, when he was telling me this, all the problems he had with the, with the uh, Marin County Board of Supervisors, whoever <laughs> let him build stuff. That he wanted yeah. to build, and then I have to say I'm with him on that one. I mean, <laughs> a fantastic thing, and just they just completely blew it, and and that you know ultimately that was one of the reasons why he sold the company. Mm. Uh, and they had they they had been causing a problem problem since 1978 or something. Yeah. So, uh, but our fans, you know, when we were in the Clone Wars writing room, you know, we would we would put on he would request to put on. YouTube because somebody said, "Oh, you got to see this Star Wars parody." It was on, and he and so we'd all would be projected on the big screen in the in the writers' room, and he loved it. He would be laughing harder than anybody else, which is kind <laughs> of what, what led to uh, that show, Star Wars Detours. Yeah, which, which, my knowledge has not been aired. Right? It hasn't. They haven't aired. Skipped. No. Have you Have you seen Detours? Oh yeah, there I saw several completed episodes. What did you think? Uh, you know, it was like anything. There were good parts and bad parts. Yeah. Um, that's common knowledge, though. That the shows were completed, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. They're they're just sitting in a they're sitting in a vault next to the uh, the Ark of the Covenant and the and the making of Force yeah. Awakens somewhere. <laughs> right. And the big uh, notebook. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah so no i don't i don't think i mean you know i i i think he's just he I, he has said to me that yes reviews and and criticism does hurt and he's only human so yeah it has to hurt him mm. just quickly on um on on you know obviously the, the books you've written since then i mean a book like The Making of Alien, that's that's a film that has been covered, um, yeah, I think we can say extensively in, in Charles Lazarica's Making of documentaries, um, other books and docs. I think there was a new doc just last year or the year before. Given that, did you kind of have any, any trepidation going into that project that, you know, that you wouldn't be able to find something new? Uh, I always have trepidation for each book I've ever done <laughs> for one reason or another. <laughs> uh, the first book I was worried if I'd even be able to write it coherently. And then, yeah, each time planet of the apes too. It was like, how, how can I, who knows whether this is a good idea or not. <laughs> so, yeah. And then, then you just, I've been lucky, I guess I could say, or rather just good timing or whatever that stuff always kind of bubbles to the surface and then, you know, somebody else could write a book about, and, and most likely will write books about some of these movies that I've already written about, and they'll find other things because mm. it does depend to some extent on the point of view of the author. You're going to privilege certain things because either it interests you or you think it's going to interest other people. And, uh, you know, some you, you interview somebody and you have 30 pages of interviews, let's say. Each person's going to choose different stuff from those 30 pages to, to put in their book. Yeah. So you can tell different stories, you know, about the same movie and they, they could be equally valid. Have you ever started down the path on a making of project and just discovered oh, there's, there's not enough here? No. Um, I think no. No. And the most complete book I've ever done still hasn't been published, which is the one on The Shining. Mm-hmm. And we're hoping that we can, you know make some kind of announcement about that book in the near future because hopefully one day it'll be published. But, but um, yeah, so far I've just been, uh, I've been uh, fortunate, I guess. The the book on the shining, was that like, was that like a passion project for you or like when you, when you were writing it, like, was there a publishing deal in place or were you just sort of writing it like on spec, hoping that someone would no, pick no, it up? It was, it was Lee Unkrich, the director at Pixar. The Pixar guy. Yeah. 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 He, I can't remember what brought us together, but we both wanted to do a book on Kubrick. And so somebody brought us together and I met him over at Pixar and we decided he, he basically drove the project and I was the, the writer mm-hmm. and he already had a tremendous amount of uh, ar- archival material in, that he'd collect because he's, he has that website and he mm. knows more about The Shining than any other person alive, I think. Yeah, I'm I'm number two or three, <laughs> uh, and uh, so it was, that was a really amazing project to work on, and and I had a lot of time to be to go through a lot of stuff, and it was such an honor to be able to work on a Kubrick movie, uh, mm. you know, arguably the greatest director who ever lived, or at least in the top five, and unbelievable films, very disturbing films, <laughs> uh, most of them. And uh, so it was, it was just great. But I, I don't think I can say anymore because I don't want to, I think we're going to hopefully be talking about that in the months, the months to come. 
Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> were you and your your novel All Up? Were you working on that at the same time as the making of books? Like, did you have to really make a, a conscious effort to like switch gears and and get into novel mode? Well, you know, you have to look at things. Sometimes you're you're unhappy about something, and it turns out to be a blessing in disguise. So when Lucasfilm moved from Skywalker Ranch, basically to the to San Francisco, I just started taking the bus backwards and forwards. Uh, maybe not every day, but most days. So it was basically two hours sitting on a bus every day. And I had been to I I'd, I'd thought about writing a novel about the first space age for a number of reasons. You know, ever since seeing the moonwalk when I was a kid, my parents mm. booked me so I could see it. And uh, so I just started doing research on the bus. Just doing a lot of research. I read a lot of books and just kept doing research and, and then slowly organizing it just like I was writing. A, it was the same process up to a point as writing a making a book of just putting everything in chronological order. So it starts off before World War II a little bit, but then about half the book is World War II and about half the book is when the you know Operation Paperclip brought those guys over, the Germans over, and they worked, eventually worked for what became NASA. Um, and, uh, but also telling the story of the Russian guy whose name I can't pronounce in the right way, but <laughs> the American, Americanized version would be Sergei Pavel, Pavlovich Korolev and his story, which almost nobody knows. And, and most people I realize, including myself, have no idea what actually was going on behind the scenes of the first space age. And then that's what I, what this exactly the same impetus practically as the, as the nonfiction making of books drove me to write basically what is a making of the first space age. <laughs> uh, but, but there are certain things, there's a whole bunch of things you can't talk about in a nonfiction way. And I'm also not an expert, obviously I'm not an engineer. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an official NASA historian. So I don't know the name of every single rocket between, you know, the V2 <laughs> and the Saturn V. Don't test me. <laughs> but I thought it would be, it's just such an incredible story. And there's things you just, and things if you write it as a novel that you can include, like uh, UFOs, uh, you know, the Foo Fighters, inside, you can get inside the heads of people like Werner Von Braun and, and uh, you know, the MI6 guy who was trying to figure out what the Nazis were doing, you know, what, what, what's going on with these, with this secret base and, in the north of Germany, and and it's a, and it's there was a huge bombing mission, and there was all these different fascinating aspects to it. And for a while, Jack Parsons was a part of the book. He's still in the book a little bit, but ultimately, he had to. I cut him out. But um, learning about all this was just it was such a wonderful adventure, and and so interesting learning about it all. Tons of stuff. I basically ended up writing a book that's like three times as long as the one we're publishing. But it was just too long. But so for me, it was just a personal journey. And it's just like a, it's a literary interpretation of the first space age. But I, you know, like that Indiana Jones novel, trying to make it as exciting and readable and entertaining as possible. But this is for adults, not for little kids. And I'm really hoping that people will like it for obvious reasons. <laughs> I, can't do it. I don't have the same economic model. I was getting... I was getting paid during that whole research part. Like, there's no way I could do that again unless, you know, things change dramatically. <laughs> yeah. 
mate, thanks, thanks so much for uh, for taking the time to uh, to talk to us. Where can the where can people find you on the uh, on the internet? They can find me at uh, jwrinsler.com. That's my website, or on Twitter. I think it's at jwrinsler. I'm only on social media about once a month, though. I try and keep my sanity. <laughs> Very wise. <laughs> um, and and I, and I can say also that there's there's another book which we still which is cinema oriented, which hopefully we'll be able to announce in the next few months. It's not a coffee table book, but it is. It should be a book that's interesting to people who are into movies, and hopefully we'll be able to announce it in, in another few months. So um, we can talk again. Who knows? Oh, awesome! Yeah, J.W. Rensler. Thanks very much uh, for your time, and, and may the force be with you and all that jazz yes and may the force of others be with you too (laughs) (laughs) the geeky one from the comic book so there you go listeners thanks again to the great jw rensler for appearing on the podcast it was a pretty uh exciting uh exciting chat for us it was cool it was like talking to someone who's seen inside the ark of the covenant but hasn't had his face (laughs) melted off Exactly. I found it really fascinating to to hear him talk about the fact that he was unsure that he could even write the first book that he pitched. Um, and that just shows you that, you know, keep going. You, you can do it. And one exactly. day, if you're, if you're good enough, you might be on a podcast where someone describes you <laughs> as the great. <laughs> Look, that, and that's, that's, that's just another example of, you know, it's always the very talented people who doubt themselves and yes. the, the people who don't know what they're doing, who think they can do it without, without hesitation. So, uh, yeah, the, the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Ex- exactly. Uh, but obviously yeah. he, uh, he, he, uh, he found, uh, he found that conviction and, and, and churned out all those uh, amazing books. Um, that does us for this week. We'll be back next week uh, for our, well, next week will be our May the 4th uh, episode. Ooh. Uh, and, um, look, no, no names yet, but I, I do believe we have a, uh, another special guest lined up for yes. May the 4th. In the meantime, people can find us at, uh, we're at force material on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can drop us a line at force material at gmail.com. Um, let us know, look, I mean, it sounds like JW is up for coming back on the show at some point. Um, so if you've got any questions for the next time, uh, we talk to, to JW, if we're fortunate enough to do so. So just hit us up on uh, forcematerial at gmail.com or on, uh, on one of our social channels at, uh, and, and let us know. In the meantime, obviously, if you, if you, if you liked what you heard this episode, if you enjoyed the pod, uh, feel free to drop us a, uh, a, a review. Uh, you know, a five-star review wouldn't go astray at uh, your podcast platform of choice. I'm Rowan Williams. I'm Baz McAllister. And you've just taken your first step into a larger world.